0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation. All 66 books. The Big Book. Cover to Cover. This is Michael Easley in Context.
1: From the 39 books of our Old Testament, we have a number of major themes, and it'd be difficult to distill them all down to a paragraph or two, but some of the themes that I think are important to remember, to recall, to keep in mind, the Eden moment did not last for very long. When God designed the man and the woman to have a perfect, unhindered relationship with them in the Garden of Eden, that did not last long. And when the woman and the man fell, they fell far. And ever since the fall, we've been trying to, as it were, get back to Eden. People will say, there is no Eden to go back to. And so we need a redeemer. We need someone to fix our situation. And the God-fearing, pious, devout Jew understood this. They understood that there was no forgiveness of sin apart from the work of God. They understood that they were separated from God. And the entire construction of the temple complex is a perfect physical illustration for them to say, you can't get to him. All these barriers are in the way. And so we have this picture of redemption being out there in the future. The Jews look forward to that. And this idea that God would choose a people and make promises to them is what the whole story rides on. Chosen people. He chose Israel. He chose Abraham. And then the covenant promises, CPCP, chosen people, covenant promises. And that's where we often talk about chesed love, that God's loving kindness is on those two things, that he made these promises to his chosen people, and we can count on them as the day they were given. When we take together the four Gospels, we have about 46% of your New Testament. And when you take the book of Acts which was, of course, written by Luke, the doctor. Uh, Most people think Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Actually, Luke wrote most of the New Testament because his compilation of the Gospel of of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, or some call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit, those two books form a larger segment of the New Testament than the rest. But if you take the four Gospels and Acts, you've got about 60% of your New Testament. Now, that's kind of striking when you stand... Some of this is so obvious we miss it. And it's important we go back to some of these obvious truths to be reminded of this. The obvious bears repeating. This is about the culmination of the person and the work of Jesus Christ to bring salvation history to bear. It's the culmination of who we longed for back from the early uh, prophecies of the serpent's head and the heel of the Savior in Genesis 3, all the way through the text, of the narrative, the story, the history of the Bible, we're looking forward to this time. And so these good news books are the culmination of salvation history. And we're looking toward the end of it, the culmination. We're ready for it to happen. Wouldn't you like the sin condition to be done with? Wouldn't you like the struggles, the heartbreaks, the disappointments, the the ruined lives, the injustice, the suffering, the disease, the inhumanity? Wouldn't you like those things to be all set straight? If that pulls your heart, you're starting to get a glimpse of the heart of God. Born to die that man might live. The culmination of salvation history isn't just our temporal landscape of 70, 80, 90 years of life, maybe 100. It's a larger picture, and it's a good reminder that these four books put together the culmination of salvation history. Now, each of them has a different emphasis, and those as we go through them in four sequential Sundays. But I do want to talk about this word gospel and proclaiming the gospel for just a moment because those words are religious words, and religious words mean everything, and therefore they mean nothing. Uh, People measure sometimes, like, how often do you say the word gospel in a sermon? I mean, it's kind of ludicrous, but these terms are important to understand how they're used and what they mean. Prior to being wrapped in Christian theology, it was just a good news, a good report. The word is evangelion euangelion. and the EU, we've talked about this many times, euphonium, euphemism, eulogy, that EU prefix means good. Angelion sounds a little bit like what? An angel. Angelion, angelion. So it's a good message, a good messenger. So this word that's put together uh, is the good news. It's used 99 times in the New Testament. But you have to look at how it's used, as always, in that context to know what is being referenced. Um, we could say, you know, a, a lot of you had virtual graduations, sad to say, but some were very creative. And it was what? Good news. And you might have posted it on Instagram or social media or sent some pictures to your friends through Facebook. It was a good thing. We're happy that he or she finally graduated, uh, you get a good job. But we're really happy now that my son has a job, a job They can leave the house and be on their own. This is good news. Um, the gospel when it becomes Christian usage, is par excellence the best news? Because it is news to rectify this old problem of sin that we can't fix ourselves. Now, the word euangelizio, or we might gloss it a little bit, euangelizo, is the gospel being proclaimed. And that's used about 54 times. So you take these two terms in our Bible that talk about the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel. And then we have these four books we call the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first time Matthew is going to use the word is to talk about the work of Jesus. And it's found in Matthew 4.23. This is the first time we're going to read it in our New Testament, the way it's organized in your Bible. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, there it is, of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. When we take folks to Israel, we are in the region of Galilee, and we go to a number of synagogues where we call it ground zero. We know Jesus was preaching in those settings. Uh, One of the fun stories in the recent decade has been Magdala. There's a sanctuary in Magdala. The Catholics were building a conference center and this is true of anywhere in Israel. You dig, you're going to hit something. And they're digging, and lo and behold, they find, uh, they find some interesting w- rocks. And before long, they realize it was a synagogue. And then they find this stone. They call it the Magdala Stone. And, of course, it's an opportunity for artists to make Magdala jewelry. Uh, but it's got this unique design on it. And they think maybe it was a kind of podium. They really don't know. But they've excavated this incredible first-century synagogue. And uh, I would say ground zero. We, are, we can be almost as sure as we can be, Christ spoke at that synagogue at some time during his Galilean ministry. We go to Chorazin, we go to Bethsaida, we go to all these places, and we're reading here, Matthew says he's going throughout all Galilee, that's the sea district, preaching and teaching and proclaiming the gospel. Notice how Matthew writes it, of the kingdom. And that's where we talk about Matthew being about the king and kingdom of God. And this work, one of the unique emphasis of his book. Now, to proclaim something, we have a number of key verbs here. We have teaching, we have proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming is an official announcement. It's a herald it has more than just like a town crier. I've heard it explained like it's a town crier you know, saying it's 10 o'clock and all's well. No, the, the proclamation was more of an edict. Think of um, when some mayors and governors in our country right now are saying, you must wear a mask. That is pretty close to a proclamation. And if they enforce it legally, that is a proclamation, That's more what the word would mean. And he is teaching, we'll talk about that in a moment, and proclaiming, he's making this herald of this good news of what? Of the kingdom. So Matthew's gospel is not just about Jesus Christ, life, death, burial, and resurrection. It's about what he's teaching them about this eternal kingdom that is available to them if they trust in Christ and Christ alone as their Messiah. Now, the other time it's used... And it comes out of Jesus' lips. And this is very interesting to me, I hope to you. Uh, But when when does Matthew in his record and the Holy Spirit move him to write this, when does he talk about Jesus saying the word? That would be a a good question. Does Jesus ever use the word gospel? Well, he does. It's way into chapter 11. And just to give you a little bit of setup for this particular uh, sequence, what's happened is uh, John the Baptist is in prison. John the Baptist had already baptized Jesus. Remember, he was unworthy to touch his sandal. He's baptized him. He's heard the voice from heaven. This is my beloved son, in whom I well please listen to him. The Holy Spirit descended as a dove, like a dove. So we got the Trinitarian doctrine there. And now we have a new baptism that John prophesied about. The one comes after me will baptize with water and with fire. So we're going forward, changing his baptism sequence. Now, John's in prison. And he's scratching his head, metaphorically, and he sends his disciples, is this the guy? He's not doing this according to my schedule. He's supposed to set up the kingdom. What's he doing? So that's the backdrop of Matthew chapter 11, verse 3, verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see, what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached. There it is. The gospel preached to them. And blessed is the one, is he who does not take offense. A couple of points here before we take a little sidebar. Depending on your Bible, uh, the old. Quotations may or may not be, you might not notice if it's in, in your Bible. The New American Standard, as far as I know, is the only Bible that will put it in all capital letters. Now, some of you might have a red letter Bible, and that's the words of Jesus are in red. And so uh, when, you, when you read uh, Matthew, there are long sections of red because Jesus re- is being recorded what he's teaching and what he's saying. When you see these all capital letters, it's a reference to an Old Testament citation. If your Bible doesn't have that, hopefully it's got a little margin note, like a 1 or a 2, and they'll have a cross reference, in this case Isaiah 61, verse 1. But just to point that out, I scanned about 10 Bibles this morning, and I couldn't find another one that put it in all caps except the NASB. So it's just a helpful tool when you're reading this. Now, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear dead are raised up again, the poor have the gospel preached. Each one of these is a sermon unto itself, literally. In fact, several sermons unto itself. But I want to focus in on one as a sidebar, and that's the blind receive sight. This miracle was reserved for Messiah. Only the Messiah was going to be able to give sight to the blind. And my One of my favorites, I hate to say my favorite. I have several favorites. One of my favorite characters in the Bible is the man in John 9. I love this guy. I love this guy. He's an object lesson. He's sitting there minding his own business, and they're walking along, and the disciples say to Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? That's a loaded question, and not to side, side, sidebar you too much, but the question was, could you sin in utero which some rabbis taught, or did the parents sin, and this was a consequence of their sin, was to have a disabled son. Both heartbreaking thoughts, heartbreaking questions. And the disciples see this heartbreaking situation of an adult, congenitally blind person, and they go, well, who sinned? This man or his parents? And of course, if you know this story, it's a marvelous story, marvelous record. And he says, neither But the the glory of God, you might see the work of God. And, of course, he's going to heal the blind man. Now, a couple of observations about John 9. Uh, We take groups to Israel, and we spend about 40 minutes at the pools of Siloam. And some of you have been with me. And I tell this whole story in great detail and how, how the whole imagery of the water being sent inside the city under Hezekiah's time, ending up in the pool of Siloam, and that's where Jesus sends the man to wash the mud off his eyes. The guy never says a word. He doesn't ask Jesus for sight. He doesn't beg him. Nobody intercedes on his behalf. He's an object lesson. He's a toad on the road. And they say, what happened here? Why is this guy? What's this question about? Injustice somebody's fault, who to blame, why do bad things happen, why should a baby be born with a disability, for goodness sakes, has anything changed? Who sinned, him or his parents? That was the common thinking of the day. Jesus is neither one. Now, if you know the story, he spits in the mud, he makes spittle, mud out of the spittle, which is, by the way, an homage to Genesis, dirt, spit, Molded clay, put it on his eyes. He sends him to the pool of Siloam. Wordplay I can't get into. Beautiful wordplay. He washes, he sees. Later on, Jesus will meet him, and he will say, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he'll say, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He doesn't even know who he's talking to. It's the greatest story in the New Testament. This guy is a total object lesson of God's grace and mercy. Now, back to the point. Of Jesus reporting to John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, the blind received sight because only Messiah could do this. It had never been done before. John 9 32, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a blind person. Think about this for just a moment. If the scribes and Pharisees are confronted with a man, who give sight to a congenitally blind person, they themselves must acknowledge that was a miracle reserved for Messiah, which is recorded about four times in Isaiah. And this is one of the verses that Jesus is recalling, Isaiah 61.1. Uh, and there are four or five others if you want to look at them. It's a marvelous story. Later on in the Gospel, in Matthew 20, Jesus is leaving Jericho. There's a large crowd following him. Um, We we don't take groups to Jericho anymore. It's too complicated to get there. But many years ago, uh, I was there with a group. And um, it's a little dicey to go to Jericho. Certain parts are a little little interesting. But uh, Jericho boasts the deepest, oldest remnant of antiquity, meaning uh, the walls of Jericho may well have been uncovered. So I was with a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy. You should be afraid right now. And he said, hey, he can take you to go see the walls of Jericho. Now, you don't take tourists here. I mean, we were going down ladders that would never have passed OSHA for a second. Uh, We were basically climbing around like goats in the rocks and the dirt. And we go down, down, down. First, I'm thinking, is he taking me down here to kill me? Uh, I don't have that much money on me to bribe my way back out of this situation. I was going on. So I'm going down with this guy that speaks very broken English. And he went, I'm going to show you the walls of Jericho. So we're going down, 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 down. And we finally get down to this cave. And he goes, that's it. And, Are you sure? And so we have this little conversation down there. And uh, I don't know if it was or not. On my ground zero, A, B, C, A being, yes, Jesus walked here today. I'll put this one, B minus, uh, A, A minus, B plus because we know enough about Jericho to know some of the perimeters. But I'm sitting there going, if in fact that was the wall of Jericho, that's where they marched around seven days and seven nights. That's where this wall fell. I mean, it kind of gives you chills if you're a weird guy like me. Uh, But Jesus is coming out of Jericho, and two blind men hear about Jesus. And they're crying out, Son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd gets mad, not to be unkind. Shut up! That would be how we translate it. Doesn't stop him all the more. Son of man, son of David. Son of David have mercy on us. Why would two blind beggars in Jericho call Jesus the son of David and asking him for mercy? Because they'd heard rumor that this guy had restored sight to the blind. He was their only hope because it had never been recorded that anyone had given sight to the blind. And this is going to tie us all the way back to the Davidic covenant, which we'll talk more about. But a point I want to make here, these blind men believed if he's Messiah, he can fix my problem. I think the ancients were just like us, but I think they had a lot more faith in Jesus Christ than we do today. We do. We're also rans. We plan our life. We do our thing. We save our money. We invest. We indoctrinate our children so they'll believe in Jesus. Hoy, we send them off to Christian schools, thinking they'll fix it. Hoy, and they go off to college and they come back. With, you know, they've turned left on us. Hoy, you know, and and you go, Lord, what did I do? Well, sorry, that's the way it works sometimes. Uh, they trusted Christ that He could fix their problem. On the Gospel of Matthew, Boa and Wilkinson, which, again, if you're newer or newer, we use this book called Talk Through the Bible, and I reference that often, and this is taken from their uh, overview of Matthew. Let me read it. The Old Testament prophets predicted and longed for the coming of the Anointed One who would enter history to bring redemption and deliverance. The first verse of Matthew announces that long-awaited event, quote, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew provides the essential bridge between the Old and New Testaments. Through a carefully selected series of Old Testament quotations, Matthew documents Jesus Christ's claim to be Messiah. Jesus possesses the credentials of Messiah, ministers, in the predicted pattern of Messiah, preaches messages only Messiah could preach and finally dies the death only Messiah could die. Now, when you read any book of the Bible, context, 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 context. What did the readers and hearers of the Gospel of Matthew, what they expect? What would they want to hear from an apostle, a prophet, let's say, who's writing an account of this person, Jesus Christ. What do those hearers want to know? This is so important when you study your Bible. I am struck by the fact that he begins with the genealogy of the son of David and the son of Abraham. Why? Just because he wants to put the genealogy in a certain order? These things would jump off the page to a Jew's ear. Because the son of David takes us back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and the son of Abraham takes us back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17. I won't belabor the verses, but both of these covenants were unconditional and unilateral. He told Abraham in Genesis 12, if if you've heard me teach, you've heard me say this a thousand times. The Abrahamic covenant is pivotal in understanding the Bible because he tells Abraham, you will be a blessing to the world, not just Jews, to the world. And we might say, not unfairly, he didn't have a choice. God was going to use him whether he wanted to or not. Secondly, we come to the, uh, the covenant of David the Messianic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in particular verses 13 to 16. And I remind you often, those are passages you should dog ear or write something or put notabene in the margin or highlight it or get your color pencils out and do something to it. You should know those two passages because this passage is about the Messianic throne that there will never ever depart someone on the throne of David. When Matthew begins his gospel, he refers to the son of David and the son of Abraham because this was the fulfillment of the Jewish promise of these unconditional unilateral covenants. There's no, oh, by the way, in these books. There's no little detail that's, oh, by the way, a nice footnote on history. Boa and Wilkinson continue. The gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as the Christ, Israel's messianic king. Jesus' genealogy. The fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, authority, and power are emphasized as his messianic credentials. In spite of his unique words and works, gradually mounting opposition culminates in his crucifixion. But the king left an empty tomb and will come again. I love the way they put the, the point on that. They killed him, they murdered him, they didn't, they rejected him, but He kind of went, ha, I'll leave you an empty tomb, figure that one out. I'm going to go away, but I will come back as your Messiah. Let's talk about some distinctives, some purposes, and then some aspects of the kingdom of God. Real quickly, some distinctives in Matthew's gospel. It's Jewish. Written by a Jew, to Jews, for Jews. It's unique in that respect. Um, The Jewish nature of what he writes about is a whole deep well. Uh, He's going to talk about the genealogy, about the baptism, the Old Testament prophetic features in this gospel, the miracles, all pointing to the fact that this is your Messiah. Secondly, the Old Testament citations. From Isaiah alone, he he, he cites Isaiah more than any New Testament writer. Why? Because the Jews understood the suffering servant. They understood, they thought Israel, the Jew, was the suffering servant. But they understood the injustices that happened to Israel, and they longed for what Israel prophesied about. And so Matthew, logically and theologically, is going to cite 53-some Old Testament references. Now, you know the difference between illusion and illusion? An illusion is what a magician does. You know, a sleight of hand. An illusion is a reference. If I said, home of the free, you would say, America. If I said something about salute, you might think of a country. We have certain vernacular. When you read some of these allusions, you know exactly the Old Testament references. And that, again, depends on your Bible. Um, Thirdly, Christ's teaching ministry. You can't miss the emphasis that Matthew puts on recording the teachings of Jesus. Think of two in particular, the Sermon on the Mount and the Olivet Discourse, these things are studied, they're loved, they're treasured, they're endearing to many Christians, and this is part of his ministry. And let me just say, oh, by the way, the word teaching, we'll talk about this perhaps in the future, but when, when you study the word teaching, you've heard of didactic teaching. Some people say, I like a didactic preacher That means sort of verse by verse, line by line. Paul is a didactic writer more so than a narrative like, let's say, Chronicles is a narrative, didactic line by line teaching. So Jesus' ministry was a ministry of teaching. And when you study what he says, it's never a happenstance. It's never an afterthought. It's never a, what I should have said was, this is who he is. And Matthew emphasizes this perhaps more than the others continuing miracles. Um, he records 20. Now, there's a debate between 35 and 39 miracles in, in, that Jesus performed. And again, not the to, not to mince logical hairs, but was this a miracle or was this sort of, oh, by the way, I, I'm not going to parse that. Tom Constable, whose notes I have recommended many times to you all, uh, you can download them all free of charge. He's got... Uh, it, Take your study Bible and put it aside and just download Dr. Constable's notes and you will have the best study Bible you can ever have all for free. What he does is a yeoman's job and he continues to refine them every year. He he updates them. Uh, We've had him on the podcast before. He's just a dear, dear scholar. He's just a bookworm. He can sit behind a computer and books for 12 hours a day. God bless him. I'm good for about five or six then my brain turns to mush, but uh, some people can do it longer. Let's talk about purposes. There's no precise purpose verse in the Gospel of Matthew. Well, John 20 is the clearest purpose statement in the Gospels, right? We'll look at that at a future time. But he says, these things have been written so that you may believe. Well, we don't have that in Matthew, but we can see some purposes if we look at the book as a whole. Again, a primary Jewish audience. 74 times he's going to talk about the king or the kingdom more than any other gospel writer. 32 times precisely he's going to say the kingdom of heaven. There was a time a couple of decades ago when you used to hear Christian teachers talk about we're kingdom people. Anybody remember that besides me? We're kingdom people. This is the kingdom of God. That was a good emphasis, but like all church trends, they, kind of last, they last a little while and they kind of play out and some new thing comes along and takes its place. But this idea, it's a major shift in the narrative in chapter 4, verse 17, when Jesus Christ is now going to, from that time on, to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So Matthew's record is marshalling this forth. It's about a king, the one who's born to be king, an eternal kingdom, Davidic covenant. Now we're having the king on the scene. And then finally, just another purpose we could say, generally speaking, it's going to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. And that's a foregone conclusion if you read what he's saying. Lastly, then, some aspects of this kingdom program. So he's talking about the king and the kingdom. What's that mean? What are some aspects? Good question. Number one, Jesus presented himself to the Jews as the promised king. That's how he came on. That's how Matthew records it. That's why he begins with Abraham and David. That's why the kingdom is mentioned so frequently. Secondly, Israel's leaders reject him as the king. Again, John 9 is a great story of their rejection when, when finally the, the, the blind man says, I love the exchange. He says, where did he come from? How did he do this? You know, he goes, I've, I've already told you. Do you too want to become his disciple? And they get all mad at him and go, what do you know? You know nothing and you're teaching us. And we don't know where this man came from. And he goes, here's an amazing thing that he you know, healed my, he gave me eyesight, but you don't know where he's from. I mean, he just, he just rope it dopes them. It's just a great story. A lot of humor in that story. Of course, he's tossed out, which isn't so funny. Uh, but they reject him. And then the third aspect of this kingdom program, we might say, is that since Israel rejected him, Jesus is unstoppable. The ministry never changed. He's going to build a church, his church. And that church is anticipating the return of the promised Messiah. Uh, Tom Constable notes some wider purposes, I would call them. First, he says he wanted to instruct Christians and non-Christians concerning the person and work of Jesus. So who is this Jesus? Second, to provide an apologetic to aid his Jewish brethren. And this is interesting because I don't know if you have many Jewish friends. When we lived in Dallas, Sydney, I had some Jewish neighbors, and I would try to engage them. And It's, it's, it's a delicate thing. I love the uh, the Torah. I love their Bible, quote-unquote. But they look at Christians askance. Uh, When I'm in Israel, it's uh, one of my little side things I always try to do is engage some rabbi or someone that's got the talits and the locks and the curls and just have a conversation. Sometimes they don't want anything to do with you. Sometimes they do. It's just like talking to an American on the street. You don't know. You know, are they going to be willing to talk to you or not? But try to learn from them and what their hang up is. And in the main, there's sort of a civility between Christians and Jews, but they don't buy Jesus. Matthew is written with this Jew in mind, as Constable says, apologetically, meaning defense of faith. And then third, he wants to encourage Christians to witness for Christ boldly and faithfully. And it's interesting that Matthew is the only gospel writer that uses the word mateteo, the word disciple. That was new to me. I had not made that observation. All the Gospels, he's the only one that talks about making disciples very clearly. It's a striking record from the moment of Jesus' birth in the Gospel of Matthew. There's two responses, kill him or worship him. There's no neutral zone. Herod wants to kill him. Religious leaders plot very early on to kill him. Others want to go see this thing that's come to pass. The shepherds want to go see this thing. Others want to come and worship him. And we'll see in in John, Nicodemus comes at night. They want to worship him or they want to kill him. And this is illustrated in the Gospels beautifully as you read through it. Um, As Christ is hanging on the cross, dying, the crowds are mocking him. They've killed the man and they're still mocking him. If you're a Messiah, get off that cross. The two thieves, illustratively, you've heard me say this 10,000 times, the two thieves represent all of humanity. If you're, paraphrased, if you're Christ, get us off this cross. The other one says, leave him alone. He on his part has done nothing wrong. We deserve our punishment. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Boy, that, that lays out, in my view, humanity. You come to Christ. Why is this injustice happening? Why is my child blind? Why are people disabled? Why is sex trafficking occur? All these questions, important questions, though they be, they are not the question. The question is, how are you related to God individually first? So one side is, what are you going to do for me? Get us off this cross. The other side is, will you remember me? And you know well what he says today, today. Today, you'll be with me. And the other one, of course, a differential. We have no commentary. Kill him or worship him. I would argue there's no in-between. There's no in-between. When you watch what's happening in our country today, and you may have a different opinion than I do, it doesn't really matter who's right or wrong here. When we watch cities being destroyed and burned and all the vitriol and people saying crazy, outlandish things, it, it pains us. It makes us mad. It breaks our hearts. We wish it wasn't this way. There's nothing new under the sun. Social media has made an ignition point that we didn't have three decades ago. Social media has made a knee-jerk response to things that people really don't know what they're talking about. That's the greater problem with instant, instant information. No one's read the article. I posted something on our in-context site the other day. It was Wayne Grudem's uh, article. And I said, before you comment, basically, Will you read it? Before you go after me and say nasty things and use nasty words, will you at least read it? And it was interesting because typically the responses populate pretty quickly when you post something on social media. And there was like radio silence. Call them out. Before you knee-jerk whether you agree or disagree with the title of the article, and it was a long article. It wasn't an easy read. And that's another problem. We don't read anymore. So we don't know history. We don't know what's going on historically. And we're all lathered up and spun up about all these current issues today. One of the reasons I don't, quote, engage the culture more often, the culture hasn't changed. The gospel is central. The personal work of Christ is. You have a response to him individually, which is a fascinating way the book lands, because the book is about submission to authority as if he's the king and it's his kingdom. You've heard me say so many times, this world is not our home. This life, at best, is a clean bus station. We're trying to make earth heaven. This is a waiting station. This is a terminal. This is a depot. This is a long TSA line. This is not heaven. There's nothing heavenly about a TSA line. There's nothing heavenly about a Greyhound bus depot. Why are we trying to make, well, I I'd rather be more comfortable in line too, but there's a much bigger thing going on that your or my life, the most important person on the planet, has been presented as the king. And you get to worship him or kill him. That's essentially the division. There's no tolerance. There's no can't we all get along? There's no let's go back to kindergarten, hold hand, drink, milk, take a nap. Forget that nonsense. You worship him or kill him. Those are the choices. There's no room for others. And it comes down in my estimation. One of the aspects we're seeing as a culture, and Christians are highly divided on these topics, and I get very disappointed in some of my friends and what they say and do. I'm going, do you think that's changing anybody's mind? Do you really think you're making a difference by saying that? Maybe they do. I'm not judging them, that's the question I ask, but this passage struck me anew. And you all know this passage too well. It's the so-called Great Commission. Let's read together, and I want you to notice the words, all authority. Read it with me. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All authority. He's a king. He may call you his friend. I would encourage you, don't consider him your buddy. He may say he loves you, I would say, I love him and I worship him. He may say he forgives me of my sins. I must say, I deserve hell. Thank you for your grace. We need to realign this relationship language. Nomenclature takes on a meaning of its own. And this personal relationship with Jesus, which is a very good way of explaining the gospel, I think has become neutered to mean something it doesn't, is it supposed to mean. You're related rightly or not related to the king of the universe. There is no other power. There is no other superpower. All the nations can aggregate together and they can take a stand metaphorically or literally, I believe, in the valley of Har and they can f- try to fight. You know, interestingly, I love taking people up to Har and talking about Armageddon and we're in the valley there and you overlook this huge Megiddo Valley on the top of Mount Carmel where the Catholics have built a little church and monastery and so forth, and you stand up there and you look at, you read the stories in Judges, you read the story in Kings, you read the story in Revelation, and you go, har becomes Armageddon. You go, know, the big fight at Armageddon. I go, you need to read it real carefully. It just says they gathered together at the valley of har Ain't no fight. Jesus wins. It's not the Lord of the Rings who's going to take over the king. The king's going to come and cut them all back. All he has to do is say a word. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. It's his eternal kingdom. Now, when I'm studying this message this week, and I'm trying to put, you know, polish it and make it palatable and not too boring, um, I'm asking myself, Michael, do you have a consciousness that he is a sovereign, eternal creator king, or is he just your savior trying to help you? That's a recalibration for me personally. And the way I think you can differentiate the question is, what's the most important thing on your week? I'm not saying it's to shame any of us. It probably isn't thinking about him as my king. It's probably not thinking about an eternal kingdom. Right? It's just We're friends. We can admit this. That's what Matthew's all about. The king has come. People rejected him. They crucified him. He left an empty tomb. He's going to come back. Are you ready? Are you waiting? Are you and I, are we living with the notion that this king will return to establish his kingdom? And I'm one of those weird people that believes in a literal messianic kingdom that will be installed on the earth. And I think Christ will reign for a thousand years. And you may not believe that. That's okay. You can pray for me as I will for you. I believe it. I just don't think you can parse it out of here any more than I can believe you can parse out Deuteronomy 30 or any other chapter that you have to cut out to deal with this. The question, watch people's response to authority. And let's just say it's ungodly authority. Let's just say the police are wrong sometimes, that political officials are wrong sometimes, because they are, they're sinful men and women, as are we all how do you respond to authority is an indication of how you respond to the authority. And there must needs be a submission, not to an evil, megalomaniac, uh, corrupt person, but the idea of authority, because Jesus Christ said, how much authority? All. He holds it. Not you and me. Not who we put in the White House. Not who we put in the State Senate, Congress. Listen, listen, I'm with you, men and women. This takes the Spirit's work and my exposure to Scripture to get me off the I, me, my of life and you, thee, thou. That's growing in Christ. He's your King. He's the eternal King. He loves you. He died for you. He took your sin in your place on your behalf instead of you. And not only that, you're an heir to this kingdom how many of us would acknowledge and admit we loved watching Downton Abbey just a soap opera but we liked it right we all want to be close to the king I don't want to be in service who wants to be in service that's why they film it in black and white and gray tones it's not that appealing give me the camera upstairs the beautiful colors, the wealth, the majesty the servants that wait on me that's my choice right I've been poor and I've been rich. Rich is better. Let's admit it. You're related to a king, a sovereign king.
0: Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates.